You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Eric Renner Brown. He is a uh, journalist who has spent a lot of time covering the uh, live music industry. So that's the focus of this episode, talking about, uh, you know, his experience of kind of being on that beat through the pandemic and uh, how things look on the other side of it. Kind of getting some trends. I think this is going to be a pretty interesting one if you want to learn a bit more about how the uh, live industry works. And also, I guess, towards the beginning, a bit about (laughs) Eric's experience coming into uh, music journalism in a rough a rough time in the past 10 years just a reminder that if you'd like to support this podcast this flux blog in general me as a human being you can head up patreon.com slash flux blog and uh, you can get uh, special episodes every week and in addition to just a ton of content at this point but anyway here we go this is eric renner brown Eric, can you tell people who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a music journalist, and I actually just started a new job at Billboard as a senior editor handling features there. Uh, Prior to that, I covered the live industry for three and a half years at Polestar, a trade magazine that covers the concert business. And uh, before that, I was uh, covering music at Entertainment Weekly for um, three and a half years. That's where I started my career. So I've been doing this for about eight years, and... uh, and uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So, um, so yeah. What what was it like <laughs> at Entertainment Weekly? And I guess it would probably be pretty bleak days for. Entertainment well, it was interesting because because uh, the Entertainment Weekly experience that I had, I started as intern there right after uh, graduating college in fall 2014 and I, I kind of think of it like I saw the the final sunset of like the timing glory days like the last gasp you know like when I started there was still like a, uh, a head of research and like I got like educated about fact checking and there was like a really robust copy desk and stuff and like um, it definitely still kind of felt like that last gasp of those that timing, you know, big, uh, big media brand days. And then kind of over the course of, I, I came back full time in early 2015. I was there for three years full time. And I, uh, kind of saw the, uh, the staff get whittled more and more and like more things became like, Oh, that, that, that's on author now. That's not, you don't have a, a fact checker backing you up. And like, there's less of a robust copy desk and stuff. And it was just like, is kind of a little bit is a little bit painful. <laughs> At what point did it stop being weekly yet retain the name? Yeah, that was after I. That was about a year after I left. So, um, so yeah, okay. in, uh, in twenty eighteen, they moved the brand's kind of central operations to LA, and then um, shortly after that, they uh, they went. They became Inter- Entertainment Weekly, but monthly. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> And then Entertainment Weekly, but on the internet. And then Entertainment Weekly. Yeah, basically, yeah. And it's sad because Entertainment Weekly was like such an incredible magazine in the 90s. I'm not sure. I think you're a little too young to really experience the 90s Entertainment Weekly. I mean... But that was like... So, yeah, I mean, it's and it's crazy. I'm sure that you've encountered this running in, you know, culture, media circles. Like, the diaspora from... 90s entertainment weekly is really something to behold like you go to 
any of the big, uh, you know, culture magazines, uh, entertainment magazines, publications now, and you'll find if, you know, if people of a certain age, you'll find the just expats from EW from the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I, and I do remember, um, you know, being a teenager and picking up their issues in like the mid 2000s and stuff even, and it was still had that kind of, uh, that, that credibility. And, uh, I think one of the really cool things about it that I did still have when I was, uh, when I was there was that they're really, they're very, uh, the kind of ethos on the staff there was always like, you know, whatever you're into, like, we're a place for you to be into it and to like lift it up and to talk about why you're into it. We're like a magazine of fans basically. And, you know, obviously they will, hold things under critical light um often but also to say like yeah if you really have a artist or a movie or whatever like you know lift it up and really you know talk about it and why you love it and it, it came from that perspective which is a really kind of uh i feel like you don't get that like earnestness <laughs> in some other brands so yeah I mean, I think about it, like, I'm not sure how much, like, a lot of, like, writers at the time, in the certainly in the 90s and the aughts, would have, how they would have felt yeah. about Entertainment Weekly, but I feel like it was such yeah. a reader-friendly yeah. magazine, and it was such a good on-ramp into pop culture, and they made everything very accessible, it's kind of what you're saying, like, uh, like that your enthusiasm as a writer should carry over to the reader, and I, I think it's just a good mentality, and then... Um, and when you mentioned the diaspora thing, I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's kind of like where the, the, the BuzzFeed thing is now. I've been going through that. And there's just an incredible range of talents that went through there and are now just populating. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really true. You have these kind of these these moments in media over the years where there's these sort of brands or publications where you'll get this you know, few years of just such a talented staff of people and then because of the realities of the industry people leave and stuff and then you're just like oh wow like there's this whole kind of network of people floating around who are from that like really talented you know lightning in a bottle moment at that yeah brand. i mean it's also so easy for publications to just make a series of terrible oh, yeah. decisions that really <laughs> oh yeah i'm i'm very familiar with that <laughs> <laughs> so that, tell me like so uh, coming out of Polestar so you're covering the the concert <laughs> industry pretty deeply how did you get on that yeah team? um well it was kind of serendipitous I, I I I left my job at um at EW and I was kind of adrift freelancing for a little bit and then I ended up uh you know somebody at Polestar had heard my name and got in touch and said hey do you want to come cover the uh cover the live industry and I was like I don't you know I think I, like when I was at Entertainment Weekly, I was, you know, I was only doing like the, you know, 15 minute, 30 minute artist interviews. I'm one of 10 writers who they're talking to that day. Everybody's asking like, you know, what was your creative inspiration for the album or whatever, you know, the end, you know, interfacing with publicists. And that was like it. And I didn't really know that there was this whole other kind of world beyond that. And like, so they did they kind of took a chance on me hey you seem really passionate about this do you want to um do you want to come cover the live industry and i said yes and then i like very quickly became apparent to me oh my gosh this is like this whole business that like i i knew obviously from going to a lot of concerts all about you know how extensive it is but i didn't really understand the sort of infrastructure that like really keeps an artist on the road and supports them. And uh, it, it was a really rewarding 
thing for me because I always, um, you know, I went to journalism school and I always kind of thought of myself more as a, I was always more interested in kind of the reporting side of things. I was less interested in, you know, I guess my, my end goal wasn't to like be writing album reviews necessarily. Um, and, and, you know, profiling artists, I was always more interested in kind of what's the, uh, you know, kind of what's the more business oriented side. So that was really rewarding for me. Um, yeah, just getting, did, did it feel like, as you got deeper into that, did it feel like you were kind of like seeing the source code of how everything <laughs> Yeah, I mean, working? it's really funny because, you know, I I do feel like a lot of uh, a lot of music writers might not necessarily have that sort of understanding of, yeah, what's, you know, going into the matrix of the, of the music business. Or like, even just like why records come out yeah. when they do with so much based on... I mean, yeah, there's that, of course. And then also just like, you know, understand, like, when people will be like, oh my gosh, like, this artist is opening for this artist, what a dream pairing, and it's like, well, yeah, they, I mean, they have the same agent, you know, like, or, or like, <laughs> I can't believe that Harry Styles brought out Stevie Nicks, like, whoa, and it's like, <laughs> that's exactly what my know, brain it's like, to. yeah, I, I, they have, they have some, uh, they have a connection, so, um, you know, so that, like the most powerful connection in the whole industry. Yeah, so, so it, it was kind of interesting to that, because it, it made me kind of under I mean you know it, it removes a little bit of that kind of like uh that like genuine awe at like a lot of things in the music business because it's like oh yeah no, that was probably calculated or at least due to a connection you know so um yeah there's, there's a reason they know each other exactly yes yeah. so it was definitely interesting kind of getting to know that and also just like you know it was also interesting kind of getting out of that. I mean, I'm obviously still a pitchfork reader and stuff, but getting out of that kind of mentality of like, uh, you know, th- like critical success is definitely not equal to commercial success and popularity and like really understanding like, Oh, these are the artists who sell tickets and they might not be covered by what we would think of as like the, the hip music media or whatever. Right. And I think the other part of that, and this kind of ties into uh, your affection uh-huh. for jam bands for sure, is that there's a, there's a whole set of artists who do incredible numbers on the live circuit, but, you know, no one really cares about their records. You know, they don't have huge streaming numbers. They don't sell a lot of records. Critics don't care about them, but nevertheless, well, yeah, they're I mean, very popular. Or maybe, or actually maybe sometimes the, the nowadays, like this, the, the streaming numbers yeah. are there too. But they're still somewhat invisible. I mean, like invisible. the jam bands, obviously, are a great example of kind of this whole parallel world that's doing like huge business. Another one that was a big kind of um, epiphany for me when I started at Polestar that I had never really given credit to is kind of uh, like that hard rock sector, like like the festivals that'll have like yeah. Slipknot and Five Finger Death Punch and those types of bands. Like that's not the type of music that I really engage with. But yeah, I mean. Slipknot never stopped. Being no, I mean, active. these are just huge, huge, huge artists, like so much bigger than like, you know, when we talk about, you know, whatever, whatever the trendy indie rock artist of the moment is, it's like, oh, yeah, this dwarfs that like, you know, and so kind of really having that understanding was, yeah, it's an interesting kind of prism to look through everything now. Okay, so your time working primarily as a uh, a reporter on this industry happened to be during the yeah. pandemic, like the most chaotic <laughs> time perhaps in the entire history of the industry. 
So like, how, how did that work out for you? Like, what was it like kind of scrambling to figure out how to do this or like, like covering something that was almost, well, not it, it was really bizarre. Cause I'd been at Polestar, I guess, like, like, like 15 months or something, like a little over a year when, when COVID hit. And I just kind of started like get into the rhythm of like understanding this industry. And like, I don't want to say that it was easy per se, but it was like definitely a kind of, you know, new kind of the situation um, with a given tour or whatever. And then it was like, uh, yeah, this is all upended. Everybody's like business models are crazy, uh, you know, thrown, thrown into disarray. And I mean, it, you know, I remember like as a journalism student, um, you know, finding out about kind of like reporters will sometimes talk about like, oh, this is a story that like made my career or like was really, um, you know, pivotal for me. And I, I wouldn't say that this, like, it was just really interesting being on the ground reporting about that because it was like, I felt like it was something historic for sure that was happening. You know, obviously COVID generally was upended so many things and with the live industry specifically, it totally changed. Yeah. And it's a lot of stories, a lot, a, of, a lot, lot of stories. Sure. I mean, because you're dealing with all these different strands of it as well. You know, uh, one big thing that I was focused on early in the pandemic in my reporting was, looking at live streaming and all the startups that happened there and, and the ways that artists were continuing to engage with fans and how that was taking this sort of live streaming sector that like had existed and like turbocharging it. And there were startups, you know, like I was reporting about this company that like in like May, 2020, somebody came over from Salesforce and did like a big uh, live streaming startup mandolin. And it was like, Oh, like, you know, this is, it was, it was fascinating to be a, uh, be writing about that and then like at the same time you had uh all the um sort of you know we're all becoming like armchair epidemiologists like i remember you know early march 2020 i'm like hitting up like nyu epidemiologists like like walk me through this like how does uh airborne infectious disease work like you know um (laughs) i i remember that one was really funny because i actually you know i cast a wide net, reach out to a bunch of epi- epidemiologists, like who's going to re- reply to me. And the, the person who ended up getting back to me, she was a, uh, she's, we got on the phone and she's like, yeah, I, I wanted to obviously getting a ton of media requests, but I wanted to talk to you because I'm actually a huge Wu-Tang fan. And I'm like, all right, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, so like walk me through this, like say that you had like free front row tickets to a Wu-Tang concert at like your favorite venue right now, would you go? would you think that was safe? And she's like, no, absolutely not. Like, you know, that was like the alarm bells were going off. Like, oh, this is very serious. So, um, so. COVID is not the <laughs> Exactly. So, so that was fascinating. And then, you know, also really interesting, I think probably the, the most fascinating kind of emotional part of covering the industry was covering the, uh, the um, hardships that, uh, that venue operators were going through and then the also it was very uplifting to see how they banded together and did neva the national independent venue association and ended up you know lobbying congress getting this relief for the venues um because those were like for like most of 2020 and then you know the first few months of 2021 like every conversation i had with somebody who worked in the venues sector i mean it was like it was really upsetting, you know, just talking to these people who are like, I'm, I've, I've like 
mortgaged my house, taken out another credit line to keep this venue open, and just like these really upsetting stories and seeing how they then came together because like covering the the venue industry before that, there's definitely like people kind of have their turf wars. There's like a lot of like, it's very competitive and people really, these venues kind of like, we're like, this transcends that we have all this common ground. Everybody's each, each individual success is like important to the greater good, the greater whole here being successful. And so, um, so that was really, a, you know, upsetting thing to cover, but also, it, yeah. It, yeah. In retrospect, do you feel like it was definitely better to have like this chaotic story that kind of curled in all these different directions versus just kind of staying in, you know, the pocket of, of something that was relatively. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was definitely a huge uh, learning experience and growing experience as a reporter, you know, just, just learning how to like cover this and obviously, uh, having some very sensitive conversations with people. Um, Did the publication itself have kind of an existential dread because it was covering an industry that could conceivably collapse entirely? I mean, entirely? yeah, well, because a huge part of Polestar's business, um, the publication actually just celebrated 40 years and, like, the first bulk of its history, it was mainly sort of, like, editorial was secondary to it's sort of function as a basically like a database and directory for the live business. So Polestar's uh, big utility is that, you know, you get a Polestar subscription if you're in the concert industry and you are able to have access to um, contact information for like everybody in the business. And also um, these very um, robust uh, databases of, um, of ticket sales history. So you can say, oh, like, what did this band, how many tickets did they sell at the Fox Theater or whatever in, like, 2007, and how much money did they gross? And that can, like, inform your decisions, whether you're a promoter or venue operator or or a uh, or an agent, you know, kind of figuring out where you want to tour and all, all that stuff. And so that was a big concern because suddenly there was no data for, like, a long time <laughs> there was no data there was no data coming in and that's like i mean obviously being more on the editorial or being on the editorial side like i i, I thought editorial was very important but like the the bread and butter of full service business still at that time was offering this resource for people to you know have this sort of these data insights about the concert business itself to inform their uh, their decisions and so um having that lack of data coming in was definitely, that was like, all right, like we kind of are hoping tours, I mean, once everything's safe, we're hoping things like get back on the road soon. So like the data can start coming in again. So then Polestar is able to like provide that service to its readers. So at this point, we're maybe a little over a year into the concert industry kind of, kind of coming back to normal pretty much. Uh, So like in that time, like what have things looked like to you as a person who has like some knowledge of the industry? Like what has been changing? Like what is interesting to you? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I just, um, like it, it's like about a year since I was at a show at the bell house with William Tyler and Steve Gunn. And I remember that that was like, I, I was, I was, Delta was kind of becoming a thing um, that people were talking about, but this idea of breakthrough cases was still um, 
still sort of thought to be extremely rare or maybe, you know, was extremely rare at that time or wasn't. The general thought was if you're vaxxed, you're fine. And I remember the show at the Bell House was like a big, like, you know, it is a really pivotal moment in how I was thinking about things because went to the show, it was vax only. Um, I wore a mask because I was visiting an immunocompromised family member shortly after, but nobody else had masks on because the thought was, all right, it's a vax only show. We're all good to go. And, um, and I remember the next day, William Tyler like was like, yeah, hey, like I tested positive for COVID and I'm vaxxed and my whole crew is vaxxed and blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, that, that was kind of this moment where it was like, you're, everybody thought up until then it had kind of been this like pretty, pretty linear trajectory, like out of the pandemic. And then it's like, okay, things are all scrambled. You start seeing like these, you know, vaccination requirements introduced and those sorts of things in the like late summer and the fall 2021. And then, yeah, it's been like kind of weird just seeing how like people like kind of just in 2022, it's been kind of like, and I, I don't know if this comes from the, the industry side or from the fan side or from both, but like, you know, it's kind of like just pretended that it's not happening anymore so you know yeah it to me it just feels like the vast majority of people go into this now like well like you can get sick like like most people are vaccinated and so they feel like the risk is lower than it would have been before and i think everyone just kind of walks around taking calculated risks like yeah and i think that you know most people now have seen somebody in the last you know since omicron basically have seen somebody they know get like a case of COVID that wasn't severe and now feel sort of, yeah. you know, okay, like that person had it. It was basically a bad cold. And, you know, I, I, the way I look at it now is that we're kind of at a phase where while there are still people who get very sick yes. and they tend to be people who are not vaccinated at all. So, you know, you're, you know, there you go. Um, but it's kind of like the, the speed bump phase where we just have to deal with these speed bumps where like, oh, we had this plan, but uh, the, this person got sick or like, you know, this all, all these kind of things that like just get derailed now because of someone getting sick or you getting yeah. sick or whatever. Yeah. Um, but but thankfully, no, relatively few people get like deathly <laughs> ill now. Yeah. Um, at least. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, I mean, there obviously are still people yeah, dying. Yeah, I mean, it's but. it's a real sort of, it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around because you see the numbers and you yeah. know that the numbers are probably, uh, you know, not representative of the true case count because of how prevalent um, home tests are now. And then you hear the data about like, you know, I, I had, I, um, I got COVID uh, in December, kind of like there was a day in like mid-December where like everybody got COVID um, in, in like... <laughs> that, that's that's around it, the time I got it. I was, I, I got it like in the week I was moving and I had to do like all this oh physical my God. I, well, I Picking up like nine years. I hope that just. you weren't like really <laughs> feeling that bad, you know, but... Oh, I mean, because I mean, I definitely had it as like the the, the chest cold too, so it was just yeah. brutal. But it's it like I had. Well, I mean, thankfully, I didn't have to see people besides the movers who were just kind of like, you know, like twenty two year old guys who just didn't give a <laughs> fuck. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so yeah, it was, it, getting it then was interesting, but, like, ever since then, like, I've kind of, like, thought to, like, I'll have, like, a moment where I'm, like, I'm, like, brain farting about something, and I'm, like, is this, like, COVID brain fog, you know, or am I just stupid, like, you know, so. Yeah, or I just have a good normal yeah, moment. <laughs> so, I don't know, it, it, it definitely is, like, obviously still a concern, and there's, like, you know, there are these cases of people having long COVID or severe breakthrough cases. And I think that that's why it's kind of been interesting thinking about with regard to the live industry, like uh, a lot of musicians are still maintaining touring bubbles, which is interesting. And a lot of musicians, I feel like this is maybe a little bit more of a thing in the spring, but a lot of musicians are still like feeling pretty frustrated by uh, fans who aren't wanting to mask or, you know, obviously fans who are unvaccinated because, you know, um, if, if an arena tour or a stadium tour, if those artists test positive for COVID and have to call off a show or reschedule a show, that's not really going to be a problem in terms of their greater kind of financial uh, stability. But like, you know, some of these small indie bands that are already touring with extremely, extremely tight uh, margins, like if they are, you know, far away from their hometown and have to cancel the tour and have to get home and have to like leave all that money on the table that was going to be at the shows and their routing that was kind of going to get them home or whatever, like that can be like pretty catastrophic for some of these indie bands. And so... I have a question for you about venues. Like, so have most venues become more lenient about cancellations? Um, yeah, I do feel like that has been a thing. I feel like definitely, I feel like especially coming out of COVID or coming out of like the lockdown era of COVID, I guess, like, I feel like venues were getting much more lenient. I mean, this gets us into a whole, uh, a whole kind of realm of like insurance and liability stuff regarding, regarding um, how the live industry works, which like I remember around the William, the William Tyler sort of episode, I, I talked to an insurance expert who was like kind of getting into these like ideas of force majeure and um, in kind of liability. And, you know, uh, if an artist has, if it, if like an artist has called off because they get COVID, that's different than if, a venue decides to call it off and that those are also different from if like the government says that you have to put an end to gatherings. So, so okay. So of, of those three scenarios, how does it really break down? Like what, what is the, the best? And yeah. I mean, I think that the, with, with regard to the first two, the kind of big uh, takeaway is that I do think that, um, that, that this kind of newfound camaraderie in the live industry over the course of, uh, over the course of the pandemic has meant that, you know, like if a venue, okay. So like, like one example was, um, fishes, New Year shows at the garden, um, got moved to April because it was like kind of right when Omicron was exploding. And there was a real question of like, what is the sort of, how threatening is this variant and what are the implications Right. There, there was a few things of that. I mean, I think the, the strokes have yes, to do that as well. their Barclays show, yeah. yeah. And, and, and so those are instances where, like, there was no government directive that those events had to come off the book. And so, like, I believe, it's my understanding that, like, well, I believe, first of all, that in both those cases, the artist called it off. 
and not the venue. And I think though, the, the kind of the fascinating thing is that whether the artist or the venue is calling it off, you have been seeing a more kind of like, like the venue could have like hopped in and said basically like, you know, you're still on the hook for this or whatever, but there has been a more lenient approach to it where it's like, we want to work together because obviously like, you know, if somebody's like, you know, kind of like a hard ass about the rules, like then you're going to be damaging these like really important relationships. So I do think that there has been more of a, uh, to answer your question, I think that there has been kind of more of a lenient approach to things like cancellations and stuff. Yeah. So, so when it comes down to the artist suddenly getting ill, so I'm thinking of like what, what's happened with Pearl Jam a few times over on the tour they've been on. Uh, does that become like a force majeure thing where it's just like, oh, well, there's there's nothing we can do. Like our bass player is sick. And we can't no, I, I so I think that that's the thing is that since COVID, COVID has been cut out of a lot of uh, a lot of most insurance policies now cut out COVID. They have like COVID, they have Whoa. COVID exemptions. So that was like kind of the big thing when tours were getting back, first getting back on the road in mid 2021 was like, oh, you... I remember talking to this insurance expert at the time and he's like, COVID will not go back into insurance policies basically until it is no longer, until it's a moot point. Like basically you can't get uh, coverage for, for COVID related stuff right now. And that's kind of the bit, there isn't a safety net for a lot of these artists. Okay. So when a band like Pearl Jam has to cancel an entire arena show on a day notice, like what happens to that? Like what, like from, I mean, obviously, you yeah. can't know the ob- yeah. all the details, but like, what what is the what is basically happening in well, that situation? And and you're more of a Pearl Jam head than me, so so you will know the specifics. But didn't they have somebody like like a teenager or something sit in for Matt Cameron recently? <laughs> like- okay, so what, basically, what happened was they had a couple shows where they yeah, Matt Cameron got sick, and they were like, okay, we have uh, they had Jeff. Uh, so it was the uh, Clean Hopper. Yeah. I used to be in the Chili Peppers. Like he, he's been touring with them, so he could play drums. And, they look, and then they had a kid play drums for like one song. As okay, 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 all right. So, so, that, so they could survive without their drummer, but then their bass player got Jeez. sick. He, he then he got COVID, and then they're like, oh, we can't play these shows. Yeah. So they had to cancel. Like, and that, that's what I mean of like there being kind of a differentiation between how this pertains to like arena artists and like. Like, if Pearl Jam has to call off their show and you have an arena, you know, whatever, like, you're going to want to try and rebook them if you can. And and you're going to... Yeah, I think that was the thing that got me. Like, those shows were just, like, flat out yeah. canceled. No, yeah, I, I could... Like, well, like, when you flat out cancel a show, does that just mean the artist is just, like, is, is eating it? I mean, you know? and... I mean, obviously, I, I think Pearl Jam is a, a case where it's like, these guys are so rich, it yeah. does not matter. Like they they can take the haircut on it, and but when this happens to a much smaller artist, I have to imagine this is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> well, canceling shows like I think the biggest issue um, is is that a lot of the shows have to be canceled and not postponed or rescheduled because um, this kind of gets into another issue of the post COVID concert landscape, which is um, how booked out venues are like well into the future like i remember in like like fall 2021 people were telling me like oh yeah like we're working like well into 2023 at this point like in terms of like 
major venues. And, and in this circumstance, I would like apply this down to theaters and clubs as well. You know, like, like these venues are just booked because so many artists need to get back on the road, especially ones who, you know, um, aren't the Pearl Jams of the world and really do need the money and really do, you know, make their living by being on the road and touring. Like, um, so there's a situation where like if an artist, if their show has to come off the books, they might not have, they might not be like the venue might be saying, Hey, we wish we could rebook you, but we are literally booked for like the next like 14 months. So you're kind of out of luck. So I, I, I wish I did have a little more clarity kind of about how the economics of that does shake out. And I think it's kind of like evolving as people kind of navigate this, because as we've seen all across the, uh, all across our society, uh, exactly who is responsible? Um, kind of that, that blame keeps getting, keeps getting shifted around over the last like year, year plus. Like if you get COVID, like, are you responsible because you're like, um, you know, uh, not being safe or whatever, or, or are we just kind of saying that's like a, uh, that's just kind of a reality of being on the road now? Like, I don't know. So. Right. And then I think there's also like, you know, coming down positive versus getting. Sick. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I have to assume there's a lot of people who are like, well, I might be positive, but I'm not sick. So it's just Oh yeah. Me. No, I, um, I, it, it just seems like such a risk that it's like the slow. Yeah. I mean, stop. If you're, that's a real ethical dilemma, I think. If you're one of these small indie bands and somebody in your band tests positive, they feel fine or feel like a mild cold. Because, you know, obviously before COVID, people got sick and still played concerts all the time. Like, you know. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, people played yeah, flu, uh, whatever. I mean, I, I think, I mean, that is also one of the psychological things of the pandemic is that we have this one disease that everyone is terrified of, but everything else is like, whatever. You know, <laughs> every other communicable, any, every other communicable disease is. I'm sure like, that you've mm-hmm. seen shows where, like, the, um, the, you know, singer is just like pounding like tea or whatever. It's like, I'm getting over something or whatever, you know, and it. It's oh, like, God, and yeah. so, you know, it's a real dilemma because then I'm sure these smaller uh, artists who are touring, like they know that if it ever got out, they kept touring while they were positive. Right. Because there was this social yeah, component yeah, yeah, yeah. to it. Where yeah, it's, so, yeah. It's fascinating. Like if you had the stomach flu, it'd be like, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to still play the show, man. Like you're not going to like, you. when are you coming back to Tulsa or whatever? Like you got to still play the show, you know, but. Uh, it, it's, it's, I, I hate to keep bringing it back to Pearl Jam, but because their current tour is so cursed, there actually was early shows where Eddie Better actually had stomach flu and still had geez. to play the show. So is that the tour that they like, had? They, I, I seem to remember them having. It was supposed to be the 2020 yeah. tour. Like I'm supposed to, I like I was supposed to see them in March of 2020. That show is now uh, uh, September 11th oh this year. Wow. Yeah, I'm seeing. Um, but yeah, but 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 they but they were. I mean, just the, this curse does not lift from this tour. Like they just played like some big festival in France, and because the it was like the you know this it was so hot and like things were just burning. There was this kind of like and Eddie Vedder just like inhaled too much smoke and fucked up Jeez, his voice for a yeah, few that's... days. So you had to cancel shows for that. <laughs> it's just like yeah, it's just like oh man, you guys this this rough time yeah, right yeah, now. I mean. So to that point about rescheduled shows, I am in two weeks from today. Actually, I am seeing uh, I'm seeing Rage Against the Machine and Run the Jewels 
Uh, Me too. Yeah, I'm like I'm see, I'm seeing them. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, purchased. Uh, per- I, I remember. Yeah, like I remember my friend purchased those tickets because I was on the way in to what would be my last in-person interview, not to my knowledge at the time, for uh, for a really long time. And I was like, you know, I mean, can you buy these tickets or whatever? Oh my god, can't wait to see. Run the jewels and Rage Against the Machine and an election year. Oh, holy shit! This is gonna be awesome. And right. <laughs> it's like maybe maybe they can yeah. tip the balance. Well, hey, and, and you know now it's a uh, now it's another election year. That's how I'm thinking about it. So you know, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. for the midterms. Uh, oh gosh, um, yeah. I'm also seeing Lady Gaga, uh, which is also another 2020 oh tour that is. Yeah, my uh, I think my own. I think Rage was my only outstanding one. I mean. I had tickets for Tom York at uh, at Radio City, and that got delayed multiple times, and then finally they, they canceled. Is that it. just fully, it canceled fully canceled now? Yeah, because like right, he's on, he's the, on smile the smile now, yeah, which I am excited to see. Um, That's better than that that last record. The last record, uh, yeah. oh, Anima, Anima, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I like the smile record more than that. Um. <laughs> Wait, so, okay, getting back to the idea of just, like, everyone's scrambling to book, like, wh- how has that been looking to you? Like, who is getting fucked over in that situation? Like, in just all the tours needing to book? Yeah, every, like just all, everybody is trying to book every venue, uh, you know, on every level, whether it's, like, arena to just the smallest clubs. Like, what is what is that situation looking like? That scramble of booking, like, further into the future? Yeah, than I mean... Normal? I remember um, I did a big, I did a big cover story for Polestar in like fall 2020 about Team Impala, and I, I was talking to their manager who also you know represents other artists and stuff. Obviously, oh damn, that's another much, 2020. Yeah, much uh, much <laughs> much smaller uh, much smaller artists, and uh, and basically, kind of, I remember what she told me at the time, which I've seen borne out, is like these big artists, like they're they're gonna be fine like they can kind of hit the road when it, like the demand like being able to find their ideal you know it might be there used to be such like a uh this artist could you know find a really you know the friday night play at madison square garden or barclays or whatever like you know more coveted than a tuesday night or something and that that might be a little bit harder for them to work out but they're going to be able to get back out on the road fine people are going to want to see them venues are going to want to book them they're you know, good business, all that. What's really been challenging has been the smaller artists where suddenly you're having artists who had tours postponed or canceled in 2020. You had artists who are like kind of planning tours for 2021 um, based on their kind of release schedule trajectory that then those got interfered with and everybody's getting pushed into 22 and 23 and you don't have enough clubs to host all those, all those smaller artists. And so it's a challenge, not, it's a challenge for the smaller bands, obviously, for the reasons we were just talking about in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, you know, how screwed they are if their tour has to be stopped for any reason due to COVID, but also just securing plays that, you know, coveted clubs in good markets is really hard. There's a lot of competition right now for the small artists. I, I was also thinking in terms of this, like, you know, your fortunes as an artist can rise or fall pretty dramatically, you know, on a dime sometimes. 
So, you know, you'll have some artists who are, you know, all of this delaying has just made people less interested in them. Oh, they just kind of fade from the memory, but then others will just kind of randomly come much bigger or like people who will just suddenly have like a little blow up on Spotify or whatever. Um, and then suddenly they need to play the, a, a much bigger venue than they could have expected. So, like, are, do you find people are booking either too small or too big venues? I, th- that's, a, that's a really interesting point. I haven't necessarily seen that firsthand, but it definitely tracks. And, like, it, I, I do think that there has been this kind of, like, you know, trying to sort of... The, the calculus for an agent right now is, like, certainly much more complicated as they're trying to figure out, okay, like my artist was getting big, like early in the pandemic or like right before the pandemic and has that popularity receded? How are we keeping it going? What venue makes sense to go into? And so I do think that maybe there is a issue of perhaps um, some discrepancies between some of these venue sizes and either demand like far exceeding it or maybe not meeting it like I like an artist that comes to mind is like like Jack Harlow like I'm curious how that tour is going to do because he was like just exploding at the beginning of the pandemic and obviously kept a lot of momentum going but it just is I mean he's had like one of the biggest that's, this that's year, true so yeah yeah but okay. yeah just like you know I, I I it'll be interesting to see how some of these arena tours do I guess so right I mean I think one of the most notable things was just like Bieber having to really scale back expectations because he wanted to do that stadium tour. But then I was like, whoa, okay, the demand is not Well, there. this is really funny because I remember it was like, again, I have I have these like late, I'm sure you do as well, these like late February 2020, early March 2020 memories of like your final moments in like society the, in the before times. I, I remember being like a week before things shut down, I remember being in Taqueria and like covid was becoming an issue. We were starting to see some cancellations. I remember that Bieber had a statement where he said he was moving the tour from stadiums to arenas and attributed it to arenas being safer with regard to COVID transmission than stadiums. And I was like, <laughs> I would love I to see like, the math I'm on that. I'm pretty sure that is not true. Um, but the, I mean, the, kind of the flip side of that is how it was interesting how the weekend took that tour that was going to be an arena tour they uh the weekend had i believe like 65 day arena tour booked before COVID hit and then postponed it and then made a lot of headlines in early 2021 by adding 30 days onto it and being the first like rescheduled arena tour or one of the first i think the first like major rescheduled arena tour and is like, all right, going to be doing this hundred date arena tour in twenty, like kicking off like January twenty twenty two. I think that he announced it like right around the Super Bowl, and then um, and then made a lot of fans quite displeased when he's like, we're calling off the arena tour, we're doing stadiums instead. And it was just like that's you know it's, it's interesting to, to observe that. Um, yeah, I mean, but it, I mean, just on that scale, it makes sense because like what weekend was huge, but I mean his his 2020 is like phenomenal. He had the biggest hit. of Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, that's, so that's an interesting kind of example of like, like expectations being adjusted over the course of the pandemic and how that kind of rippled out to, to live. And I mean, a lot of fans were, you know, mad because they had held on to their arena tickets for, you know, whatever, more than a year. And, you know, then you got to go back to the on sale and try and get tickets to stadiums, and stadium shows and arena shows and all that. So, 
Eric, are, are you also annoyed when people conflate stadiums and arenas as if they're the same? Uh, quite, quite annoyed. <laughs> it drives me insane. It's amazing how often this is just like in like music writing that is edited that just goes right by. It's like, it, oh God, especially when people say like something is like they're, they're playing stadiums. Like, no, they're not. There's like there's like maybe like 15 artists now who can play. I mean, it's a stadiums. matter. It's a matter of scale that just is like. It's like, well, like for for example, like right now, like the Chili Peppers are out on what what they are billing as their first ever stadium tour, and it's like they've been an arena band for so long, just like such a reliable arena band. It's like this is a huge step up for them, and arguably, I, I think that this is kind of an interesting thing. Is the this is an interesting uh, trend sort of coming out of COVID? Is the rise of the. Uh, of the package tours of in this idea that like, all right. So like last night uh, or over the weekend, the, uh, the chili peppers were headlining a couple stadiums in California with, with Beck as the opener. And I think uh, Thundercat is the like, you know, special guest or whatever. And it's like, yeah, the, the one, the one uh, in New York city at, at the former giant stadium is the stroke. Yeah. And so there's this, so that, I mean, so that's an arena band opening. Yeah. Tour, and there's this, band, basically. And but there's this kind of, idea of like all right the chili peppers can reliably sell out arenas but like to sell the what i don't know exactly their ticket count they're going for at the stadium but to presumably sell 55 60 000 tickets they're going to need another strokes level artist to you know bring in 10 15 000 more fans so yeah it's uh it's interesting yeah that is a, yeah that's a huge bet i mean anyone aiming for the stadium that that is you're either going to come away from that experience like bigger than ever or or like like last year Um, the one of the biggest tours of the year was the and this was announced before covid but it was the package tour with green day weezer and fallout boy and that like none of those bands i mean like green day is huge but i don't think green day like I, I did a big story about that at the end of last year and um, their Green Day's management was t- was telling me like, yeah, uh, when we start, they had started managing Green Day, you know, just a few years ago and it, like Billy Joe was like, we've never played stadiums, we want to play stadiums and, the, and Crush Music, which actually manages all three of those artists. Um, was like, all right, we'll make that a reality for you to play stadiums. But like, you might need to have some other people on the bill. Like, I don't know that Green Day itself can do can do stadiums, you know. Right. There, there's another version of that this year. I mean, not not like a version as it's a franchise, but there's like the yeah. Death Leopard and Poison and uh, um, who's the other one? Through, but yeah, it's through. just like yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, also yeah, Joan Jet. Jet. So it's it's basically like a mini yeah, festival yeah. of 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 eighties. Uh, Era yeah, rock band. yeah. So that that stuff is is fascinating, and it's like interesting, kind of thinking about like, yeah, what are people looking for in terms of like, you know, making making we're we're gonna make a day out of this. We aren't like, or we're gonna make an evening out of this. We aren't just going to go see you know this band headlining in the stadium. We're gonna go see four bands. Yeah, but 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 also, but then you have like Lady Gaga who's doing the stadiums, and it's Dang, just her. That's awesome, <laughs> and it, it's just very bold. But it seems to be working yeah. out. Uh, but I mean, I but I do think that it was a a bold choice for her. Oh to yeah, because it could easily fail. And had she done, uh, had but, she done know, stadiums but, before? Wow. 
Wow. No, she she was always arenas and um, I actually didn't quite realize this, though she's done a lot of like shows with like Tony Bennett and she did like a, a Las yeah. Vegas residency. She hasn't done a real tour in a very yeah. long time. Uh, the last one was Joanne and that's like oh, 2017. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so they're, I, I think they're you know, kind of banking on, banking on that demand, but also like a few of the biggest hits she's ever had came out in the meantime. So she has like Shallow and Rain On Me. So, and a couple others, like there's, there's no, what's the other, I can't remember the other one. I love, I love, really big I love Stupid the, Love. Was that a big, was that a big hit? Yeah. Stupid Love, that's a big one. But, but like, uh, Rain On Me and Shallow are like easily two of her biggest songs ever. Shallow is absolutely oh, yeah. her biggest yeah, yeah, yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question. Yeah, no yeah, competition. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's, and that's, if you're going to play in the stadium, that's the kind of song you want yeah, to yeah. have. Yeah, um, no, I don't particularly like stadium shows, so like going to this is like is like okay, this is I would absolutely prefer this to be an arena. I mean, that's the last time I saw a stadium show was I saw the Rolling Stones uh, on my birthday. Oh wow, yeah. Ago. So it's so it's almost as as we speak, it's almost exactly three years ago. It'll be twenty nineteen. So no, that's four years ago. Really, the old whatever, whatever it was. I don't whatever know the last time I shot I saw a non Deaden Company stadium show. <laughs> that's that's like my stadium band I see. Right, so and that feels like a different thing altogether because this it, there, it doesn't seem like they, they would do as much spectacle you're just there to kind of vibe with yeah they don't stuff. um you know obviously the stones or you two or whatever they're doing the whole they're doing the whole stadium you know in terms of their their the seating and like dead you know does have they do have a lot of the stadium is blocked off and it, it's actually interesting because some years they alternate um generally you know if you take kind of COVID out of the equation they generally alternate in new york market for example but like Every other year, they'll do two nights at City Field versus one night at City Field. And oftentimes, when they do the one night at City Field, it's because they're also going to be doing a fall tour and they're going to do like two nights at the Garden. But um, it, that, it's really interesting because they have more demand than one night of City Field, but substantially less demand than two nights of City Field because, like, the show will sell out if it's just one night at City Field. But if but if there's two nights, so 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 it's like it's basically one point. Basically, 5. basically, yeah. <laughs> what would really make sense is for them to do uh, a city field and a garden in the summer, but like in terms of ticket count. But uh, yeah, no, yeah, people just vibe at, at the Dead and Co shows. They aren't uh... actually. I want to ask you a little a bit about that. So when artists do that, okay, we'll we'll, we'll book a second night somewhere, like. That seems like a, a, a risk too, because some. I mean, the, what you just described. Like, I actually had this experiencing Interpol twice by accident. I didn't actually intend to see both nights of uh, their run at King's yeah, Theater just yeah. out that way. But the first night was like sold out, and the second night was like half empty. And that you know you have to be prepared for yeah. that to happen yeah. when you do that. Like, so like what goes into like people making those decisions? Do you have yeah. Like well, that? um, a lot of times what will happen is that a, uh, is, and this is something that I've actually been wondering about with regard to the Springsteen tour, which, um, which is that, uh, like, that's the biggest like Torian story the last couple of weeks is just like in terms of the tickets and everything for that. Yeah. Let's put a pin in that for sure. I do want to come back to that, but it's in terms of like, um, Springsteen in his calendar had a lot of um, a lot of conspicuous days off, and like he's he's on the older side now. Um, we don't want to think of him as a mortal, but he he, he is a mere mortal ultimately. It does seem like people are approaching this tour as this yeah. could be the last time. 
or at least the last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 my thought when I saw it um, was he has a lot of built-in days off, but really they're going to add second dates in a lot of these markets. That was what I thought and what I continue to think. Although now it's been you know cast a little doubt on it because a lot of the time what happens is that you will have a big tour. And they will have these kind of conspicuous off dates that happen to be around, you know, the uh, the New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, whatever, you know, Atlanta sort of uh, dates on the itinerary. And then it will be those shows will blow out immediately on the on sale. And then it'll be like, oh, surprise, like we have yeah. a second day. I think like what a lot of people don't understand is like that second day that was held on like. Obviously, you have a venue like the Garden. They aren't just like, "Hey, uh, yeah, your 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 show did really well. You want to do another day?" Like that was always like a possibility and just not announced because they obviously want to make sure that the first date sells out and also like like they want to gauge how quickly it sells out, um, that type of thing, you know. Because they, you know, when these tours go on sale, these venues and promoters, it's like a war room where they're, everybody's in a conference room. They're seeing the ticket counts rolling in. They're seeing, all right, we've sold uh, 78% of the inventory in the first 46 minutes on sale. And they can, you know, they have these models where they're able to say, okay, so we can then, you know, make this conjecture that it, we, we held the second date and now we can announce it and put it on sale and that will sell sell well. But like in certain cases that obviously doesn't go well. There there wasn't quite maybe their model was off and there wasn't quite enough demand to meet the second date. Or um in cases where they maybe got a little bit uh out ahead of themselves and announced two dates from the get go and then which Right. I, I mentioned Interpol and I think they're an interesting case because they're tr- it can be hard to gauge like what your level of popularity is because the last time they played New York, they played. MSG. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it wasn't like a total, that wasn't a total sellout, but it was like respectable. And they're playing with, uh, you know, two relatively small yeah. bands at that time. That would have been snail mail yeah. and Carsey headrest, which are both bands that since are bands that can play like pretty large theaters. I mean, Snail mail sold out. I mean, I so um relative uh, a relative part. I was shocked. But, but I guess what I'm saying is like, it's, it's how, like how do artists who are maybe on that kind of like potential downhill slide like make those kind of plans without trying without the potential of embarrassing themselves? <laughs> I think I think that's where you want to have a good agent. Like you know, you want to have somebody who's not going to like have you. Uh, embarrass yourself, you know. I mean, it, 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 it. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, the dead uh, is a completely, you know, singular, unique example that like can't you can't really compare other acts in the business. Then, but like, like with their city field date, they did announce the two dates simultaneously. They didn't wait to see if the first one sold out or not. And then it's like, okay, like day of the show, there's still like thousands of tickets available. And they're like, Ticketmaster is like slicing, you know, slicing the prices to just like try and get people to fill the seats and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's that, that stuff is interesting. Um, I, I just, speaking of two night stands at King's theater, I was like surprised um, by how, uh, how, um, I, I saw Beach House there a couple weeks ago. And oh, like, yeah, me too. Yeah, it was time. like, uh, like totally like sold out or close to, I mean, just cause like I, um, had a pair of floor tickets and I had to get rid of one of them. And I think I paid like 70 something on, you know, from, from the, you know, primary seller. 
And it was, uh, I went on StubHub and I'm like, oh my God, am I going to be able to make my money back? And I go on and pit tickets were going for like 200 bucks for that show on StubHub. I was like, oh, what wow. the hell? People I mean, love people, them. I mean, I yeah, love I mean, them, but. People I'm love like, these <laughs> like, I was, that really blew me away. I mean, good, good for them, you know? And so that's that. It's weird because they're, they're, they're such a cold line. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that, that's an interesting example of like, you know, uh, probably somebody in their camp was looking at some of that info. And it's like, oh, we maybe could have, we maybe could have charged more for these tickets. If, if in that, that kind of bring, yeah. Right. So that, I guess that, that brings us kind of bridges us. There you go. Yeah. Team. But the question of like, like, how do we, like, what is, what should be priced things? And I have to imagine Beach House is the band who probably would be like, let's keep, let's, let's not get greedy yeah. here. Like, but and I think there's a lot of artists who would, but then you have this uh, variable pricing model, which is now making people sort of furious with Bruce Springsteen, an artist who's always you know put it forth uh, a man of the people thing. But now people like if they get lucky, they're paying three hundred dollars for yeah, something. yeah. I mean, I mean the interesting thing about that is that um like Bruce specifically, this is where Bruce specifically and what he's all about really plays into this equation because, you know, certainly like there's plenty of legacy acts who have charged an arm and a leg for many years, you know, and like almost have a, yeah. I mean, everyone expects the, exactly. Eagles, for that's example, the, to be, that's like yeah. the, I think that's them and the stones are like notoriously like, just like, yeah, we're going to charge an arm and a leg. And like, that's what it is to see our band. And like, you know, uh, I hope that you really like, you really like these songs. They're going to come like, we know that, you know? And, uh, and Springsteen did always have that sort of um, more, yeah, man of people, not screwing his people, um, not screwing his fans, uh, sort of aesthetic to him. So I think that people were really disheartened to kind of see him. Uh, I think that there's kind of this open question of exactly how complicit he is in what happened. And like, it, it brings up an interesting kind of, uh, an interesting kind of, uh, sorry, there's some, there's some noise down below on the street. I don't know if you can hear. Um, yeah. Uh, I know. Yeah. Uh, no, there's, um, there's this sort of interesting, like, uh, question it brings up in terms of, yeah, like how much say does an artist have over that? How much is he boxed in by his, uh, relationships with venues and with Ticketmaster and with, you know, Live Nation or, or like John, John Landau, Landau, who seemed pretty cool with yeah. it in that year. I mean, one thing, one thing that but, so so. I mean, so this is essentially like scalping your yes. And the and the argument is the the pro Springsteen argument is like, um, if if there are people out there who will pay, uh, you know, fifteen hundred bucks or whatever for a Springsteen ticket, um, why should that money go to a scalper and not to Springsteen? And then. I've also seen this sort of, we, we were talking about how he, there definitely is a sense that this might be Springsteen's last tour. There was kind of an even more prevailing sense this might be his last tour with the E Street Band, even if it doesn't mean that it's his last tour. And like Springsteen, one of the pro Springsteen arguments I've seen is like, you know, um, the E Street Band, like obviously he has these like really deep relationships with them that go back, you know, decades to you know his adolescence basically and it's like and and they're sort of you know they aren't necessarily going out and raking in tons of money on their own um performing without him 
the retirement, it's the retirement fund, fund for people. you know for for whatever for for Max Weinberg or something. What? Okay, but yes, but these are also very successful people. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's no one in that band who's broke. There's no. There's. I mean, God, I mean, like. You know, you're talking about people who also have their like Max Weinberg and uh, uh, Lil Steven would have their own yeah, sidelines, yeah. their TV mm-hmm, money. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's interesting because there's also the, the sort of discussion of like how does it ripple out to people who maybe are lifers on the uh, on the E Street Band crew. It's the crew. Yeah. It's the crew. This was something yeah, that, I think that's the more fair way to look that, at uh, it. Actually, Jerry Garcia talked about a lot in the latter years of his life was, uh, you know, in the mid late eighties, the dead ascend to being true, a true stadium band and their crew at this point has just ballooned to, you know, so many people in their, you know, in every aspect of it. And Jerry, whose health was not good and who had, you know, substance abuse issues and, and whatnot. And probably, should have taken some time for himself felt extremely conflicted about doing that because he had this very strong sense of like if i go off the road i can do that but like where is that gonna that's gonna leave all these people who have committed themselves to supporting my band you know professionally that's gonna leave them all in the lurch and like they don't have the money to like survive a year without the dead on tour so I mean, this comes up with a lot of artists who are, are are very successful, where like they become these little industries, and you know, when you consider like, well, maybe we should stop, maybe we should break up. Well, okay, but then I I have all these mouths to feed. I can't just fire Louis. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's really fascinating, and I think that that you know that is one of the things that was really interesting about covering the live industry was just really understanding that because like obviously. You know, if you're a layperson who doesn't cover the industry and go to a concert, you're like, you you know, on a basic level, like, oh, yeah, there's somebody making these lights happen. There's somebody doing the sounds. But like really understanding the scope of like the teams that are supporting every single tour. of And all the facets of it, the stuff that you don't actually. You know, I mean, there is I I worked on a story last fall about uh, about. the drivers of like coaches for these for these artists and like how there was a huge uh, shortage of drivers after covid because like a lot of them went and ended up getting um jobs with like trucking companies for like amazon walmart and stuff because like oh god that, that that's sort of like with the the uh the in the airline industry how like oh we we don't have as many pilots because a lot of them just decided okay you know what, i'm just gonna take these private yeah jobs. and it's like really sad because like a lot of these coach drivers like have like extremely close relationships with their like it's not just like oh give me a bus driver like a lot of these bus drivers are like oh yeah i've driven you know i i remember um trey anastasio's uh, bus driver like uh, recently retired and like it's like he's taking me to every show that I've played for the last 17 years or whatever you know like these extremely deep relationships with these damn you, that is a raw that is a road I mean you know right yeah there. just like they just they just that that is yeah yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's definitely it is really interesting to think about kind of the ramifications of, of, of these things for the for the for the, all the people who support these artists who, you know, we think about, oh my gosh, like, like, you know, 
whatever you know whatever artist on, is on tour that must be like so like such a grind for them it's like well imagine if you're the one who isn't the multi-millionaire and he's just like driving the bus or whatever you know so <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen with that kind of variable pricing thing do you think that some artists are, are going to just for their you know just for, to kind of not be dicks or to kind of preserve their self-image um like to kind of back away from it, the, like what do you kind of anticipate with that, or or is that just going to be become like a more a bigger, a more ruthless part of the whole thing? I gosh, I that that's kind of the million dollar question. Like I'm I am curious, um, sort of how these artists will respond because like what a PR nightmare that was for for Bruce, you know, like and 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 to think of oh yeah, like you know, ostensibly, uh, in the, uh, near future, one would think we would see like a Beyonce tour at some point here. And it's like, uh, and like, how are people going to react if she does that? You know, like that would really cut. I feel like she absolutely would. She's, I don't think Beyonce is the person who would have any, she's extremely savvy business person Um, and like understands the market and like, you know, kind of the like artist friendly, uh, line would be like, can you really blame her for saying like, I'm Beyonce and people want to pay for my tickets. But but then I I guess like the downside from the artist perspective is like, who are these assholes at my shows? Why are like, there are no cool kids at my shows. Why is it all people who are like, uh, they're like 60 year old guys who own car dealerships, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It's like, who, who is, who's paying that money to see Beyonce? But then, I mean, it gets into this other sort of the kind of, and this is something I would think about a lot in just my general coverage of the music industry was like, or of the concert business um, was like the different types of concert goers, like, um, like me and you, we, we go to a lot of shows and that kind of impacts how we think of the act of going to a show. But like um, I was in the fall, I was at a, uh, I was at Chris Stapleton show at the garden and, um, and walking around the concourse, like it's very obvious the way that people were like, you know, dressed up and stuff. It's like, it's like, you know, for a lot of people, they have their few, their handful of stadium or arena acts who they're interested in. And that's who they're gonna like, like that's their, that's their concert for the year or that's their. You just flashed me back to seeing Depeche Mode (laughs) at MSG and like walking around and be like, okay, so this is like basically uh, people in their, in their fifties, basically like a lot of like people, they're all dressed up in their special golf clothes and you know, the kids are at home. They got, they got, <laughs> you know, they're, they're yeah, they, for they this. Got the sitter. You know, it was definitely, it definitely had a lot of that. Energy they're doing, they, they got the show. sitter. They're going to like go out to a nice dinner beforehand. They're, this is, they're going to, you know, get the poster. It's a it's night, night out. out. And so like, when you think of it in those terms, it's like, yeah, like I do under, I do understand this idea of like, yeah, somebody's going to pay like 600 bucks for Springsteen tickets. They're going to, you know, get a hotel in the city for the weekend. It's their favorite artist. They aren't going to any other concert. Yeah, it's, like, it's a basically Yeah, a exactly. And it's like a, it's like a vacation almost. Right. Exactly. Whereas to me it's like, oh, it's Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so, you know, it's a uh, it's just kind of fascinating to think. Yeah, the, the benefits of, of not having children and living in New York City for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a fascinating thing for sure. So okay, let's let's yeah. wrap up soon. But uh, so, what do you kind of see coming? What's interesting to you on the horizon? Like, what do you think is uh, exciting like, right now? Or weird, like or in, bad in music or in concerts? Or 
Yeah, the, the music industry, I guess, or just but especially with the concert. Industry. I mean, I mean, the thing that I've been following that has been interesting to me is kind of looking at the uh, the fate of the like mega festival and thinking about like you know. Oh God, we didn't even touch didn't. on festivals. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, here we go. Let's 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 this is encore encore. We're doing festivals. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it's it's interesting, kind of thinking about the festival sector because yeah, we were talking earlier about these kind of package tours and about almost being a mini festival, and I feel like this idea of wanting to go to um, like well, like we're speaking as Lollapalooza is happening, and like just thinking about who are those events for and what are people wanting to get out of them? And then seeing the kind of parallel rise, and this was happening also before the pandemic of, of what we would call, you know, boutique festivals or artist curated festivals. We're going to have like, you know, maybe a label or like an artist is going to kind of do like a day or two festival. And like you're seeing. Um, right. Or what's that one like more like psychedelic one that's out in the desert? Oh, uh, Desert Days. Right. Yeah. 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 My, my brain was going to Desert Trip, but that was that thing <laughs> with like all the. Elders. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, you know. But yeah, yeah, but there's a lot of those, and those always seem a little more interesting to me because there's like a coherent thought, um, or, or like, you know, like Riot Fest. That's like a very focused idea mm-hmm, of a festival. Mm-hmm. But, and obviously, um, the big example but, from this year being when when we were young, the the emo pop punk one in Vegas, where it's like extremely focused, and and and, and right. AEG. So when we were young is the Live Nation one, but AEG has been. Um, very savvy in kind of doing um in branching out into these like hyper specific festivals they just did a palomino festival in southern california and that was i think like headlined by like yeah. casey musgraves and willie nelson just like a very focused kind of- right it's it seems like it's things are starting to swing more towards like genre centric things uh or vibe centric things uh while there's still like a lot of these mega festivals that are just kind of like almost like a random assortment of artists. Um, it's like whatever was trending on Spotify when they were booking it. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, cra- it was cracking me up. I, I, I made a joke on Twitter the other day because like, like, uh, like at Lala, um, one of the, con- I, I'm, I'm always like, even if I'm not going to the festival, I just like get a lot. I find it very fascinating. to you know, like look at the schedules and the conflicts and think about like, what would I do if I was there? And, um, and there was a conflict of Billy Strings up against Hundred Gex, and I was like, oh "My God, like that would I would probably be the only person there." You mean the person? I would torn. be that person, <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. it's a. But you know, it's interesting to think about, like you know, yeah, the, these mega fests. It's really cool because yeah, you can see Billy Strings and Dua Lipa in the same, and Metallica in the same yeah. weekend, but like, I. I my friend Molly was watching some of the live stream the other night and we were talking about it yesterday and she was kind of thinking about like nothing happens at these festivals. It's like, you know, she's a person who's gone to a lot of Coachella's and Coachella is the one where like, if something notable will happen, it will probably happen there. It's also the beginning of the season. Um, But, and then like, I think there are other ones like Glastonbury or like something like cool might happen at that one. But like these and like Lollapalooza is not a small festival. It's probably like the second or third yeah. biggest festival yeah. we have in the United States. Um, but like increasingly, like this is kind of like, it's just like the place. If you just happen to live in the Midwest, that's the one you go to. And they kind of cater to a little bit of a Midwest vibe. Like the crowd is, is, is more normie than yeah. 
other ones yeah. would be. Or, or also like Governor's Ball in New York City is n- now notoriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it. Like maybe my kind of uh, festival takes are uh, colored by. <laughs> now I, I, I turned thirty last year, and like you know, maybe maybe my like festival takes are like being colored by the fact that I'm like, yeah, I don't really get this anymore. Um, you know, or, or like I don't really feel like. Do- I mean, I did actually. Um, earlier this summer, I, I went to um, I went to Primavera in Barcelona, and that was a event. <laughs> um, that was a that was a happening. Um, you know, it was interesting to kind of compare that to, to U.S. festivals and stuff. But like, and, and that's a pretty well curated. It's very festival. well curated, yeah. Although, like, a lot of it was thrown into. I mean, the Strokes had to pull out from the weekend I went to because they had a case of COVID in their camp. You know, and there was stuff like that. And, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely fascinating to think about the direction that the festival industry is is headed in. I mean, like you saw that. Um, I think it's happened a couple times now. Another um, AG festival, uh, that just like Heaven Festival. I think like the headliners were like this, like like you know. Oh, that was basically a 2005 indie. Yeah, album. it was like MIA and Block Party, or or actually maybe. Or, I think yeah, I think, there, I think one version was more two thousand five, another version was more twenty. Yeah, yeah, you got the like, idea. You know, it was like MGMT and Passion, micro eras yes, of indie nostalgia. Yeah, and I think that people have these promoters are starting to maybe get savvy to yeah the idea that, that yeah who is this for? for? And then I think you also know. like I you know as an artist I would imagine it's probably a little more rewarding in some ways to play to like more diehards, but also I could see that. Yeah. Also, also maybe with more of your yes. friends. But I could also see that. I would imagine like the people playing that one festival would be like people who played shows together yeah. before. We're like, yeah, hey, yeah. it's the guy from Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, 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 dude. But I could also see the flip side of you know from a business perspective of like you know like what if you feel for somebody like Billy Strings from the Jam World to be playing Lollapalooza and like it's you know getting in front of all these people with no idea who he is and like just see this guy like shredding making ungodly sounds out of an acoustic guitar and it's like <laughs> whoa this like rocks like this is sick even though it's bluegrass you know yeah i imagine this is probably like next year for yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah well eric thank you so much for doing this this was such a great conversation thank you for having me um like how can people find you in, in, in your writing i'm uh, uh my, my twitter is at eric renner brown and uh and yeah i'm uh I just started a billboard. I haven't actually had any bylines for him since starting. I'm, I'm, I'm working more in the, um, I'm more uh, editing there. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter and you uh, will see me tweet out articles I write and many takes, which you may or may not agree with. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, All right, thanks again. Yes, thank Sorry. you so much. I really appreciate you having me on.